This episode of What the Fintech is sponsored by Mambu. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Kunal Galev, Regional Director for EMEA at Mambu. Welcome to the show, Kunal. Thanks, Alex. Really happy to be here. It's great to have you on. And um, for everyone listening, this week's episode, we're going to be chatting about financial inclusion, helping the unbanked and underbanked, interacting with diversity in forms of both your customer base and in your own uh, office and in your own staff and how that affects financial institutions. First up, though, as usual, is our news and numbers segment. Those who are familiar with what we're about to do, but if you, if you don't, then this is the section where we go out and find some news stories that have interesting or eye-catching numbers to do with the financial services industry and then discuss them in a little bit of detail. So, Kunal, you're our guest, so you have the honor of going first on this one. What, what's the, the story you, you'd like to talk about? So there's a story which came out, it's not a new story, but it came out a couple of years ago. So it talks about the cognitive burden of poverty. And it's linked to something called the scarcity theory, which essentially says that when people are under financial duress, or effectively the topic of this conversation, if they are underbanked or unbanked, it has a direct impact on their cognitive ability uh, and the ability to uh, function. And it inherently puts them at a disadvantage, if you think about it. And they did a very interesting study, which was across in two very different setups. One was a mall in New Jersey, and one was sugarcane farmers in India. And in both cases, what they found out was when people are under financial duress, or they are not comfortable financially, it has a direct implication on their cognitive ability. And the number of IQ points he lose is roughly 13, which is equivalent to what you lose when you haven't had a proper night's of sleep. If you think that in context, and if you look at what's happening in the world, there are about 1.7 billion people who are unbanked at the moment. And, and that's quite huge if you think about it. That roughly is about 28% of the world's population. We recently actually ran a survey across 2,000 people, across customers who are unbanked and underbanked. And what we found out was that 56% of the consumers claim that they are underserved because there are services out there which customers are unwilling to access. And if I just build on that, how severe or what are the implications of somebody being financially underserved or underbanked or unbanked world and i'm switching to a report alex but essentially world bank did a study recently where they found out that amongst the population of unbanked and underbanked people nearly two-thirds of adults without an account cited lack of money or they have too little money to be able to use to actually have access to financial services. A fourth of the adults said the reason that they don't have an account or they don't use financial services is that they find it too expensive to actually open an account. And the third one, it's about the distance, which if you think about, we are living in a digital age where roughly five and a half billion people have access to mobile phones at the moment amongst the underbank 22 percent of the adults said that it's the distance that the financial institution is actually too far away for them to go and 
deal with their financial accounts on a day-to-day basis. And the last bit is documentation. The fact that people don't have proper documentation, the processes are cumbersome, and it just adds burden to what they're doing is actually makes it innovative or prohibitive for the customers to actually go out and open a financial account. In short, I think if you think about scarcity theory, the article on the cognitive burden of poverty, it essentially highlights that it's one of the biggest issues we are seeing as professionals in financial services. It's a call to arms that the impact is quite stark. The implications are quite stark. It's got to do with having easy, simplified, digital access to consumers to ensure that they have access to financial services. And as an industry, we can do more of inclusive banking and serve the underserved. Yeah, I think I think it's a really important study you, you cited there, Kunal. I think the yeah the thirteen IQ points that that you lose over, over worrying is is a big one. I think I remember reading in a, a write up about that report that it shows the dissonance in terms of how sometimes people who are underbanked can be ignored by the system. In that, it, I think it, it separated two people out into groups of rich by their income and then it looked at an issue with a with an automobile and the one that cost $150 and one that cost $1500 and for both groups the $150 thing was not a big problem but then the $1500 for the poor people it was an extreme problem it goes to show that if you're looking at those problems sometimes it can be easy to miss if you think if you treat both groups as the same yeah. there are some parts where things can have you know an, an, an immense impact on people's well-being and Alex, you're right. On just on that study, on the when they quoted fifteen hundred dollars for a car repair, the group which was which was marked as poor or categorized as poor, they actually struggled on the IQ test before and after. So even asking a simple question to a stranger in a mall that if you have to spend fifteen hundred dollars on a car repair, how would you do it? Directly has an impact on your cognitive ability which if, if you think about it is quite important fact to take note of and i think that actually it kind of ties in quite well with the, the story which i've brought for my news and numbers which is uh, it's quite a low number it's sick in terms of time it, it, it's quite large it's six weeks that's the the number of t- the m- number of weeks that uh, the fca in the uk is giving non-bank and e-money firms to make it clear to their customers that they aren't banks the fca has said that it's concerned that Many e-money firms are not adequately disclosing the differences in protections between their services and traditional banking systems. This is what the FCA said in their letter. In particular, the problem comes with FC, FSCS protection, um, which obviously applies to regulated firms, but not to e-money firms. There are plenty of uh, companies that are on that list, but there are plenty of others that are not. And we've seen examples um, where Fintech Futures was reported on a few in the past, and we've talked about Firms like Lannister on the podcast, we've talked about firms like Pocket and Wirex, or we've written about them on the website and the risks that come with it. And I think it's in a time when, and this sort of ties in with the the financial inclusion and also the dealing with unbanked and underbanked, in a time when people are, as you mentioned previously, when they're looking for financial services that don't when their main worry is about how much it might cost to open a bank account or engage with financial services, if you're a firm that is offering that service as, a, as free, but disguising the fact that you're not a bank, or maybe not disguising, but you're not disclosing the fact that you're not a regulated entity, that can only cause uh, more issues for people. What do you think? Yeah, and I think if you definitely, and if you look at the UK, UK is a really good example. The Bristol University did a study 
where they qualified something called a poverty premium, which is essentially how much does it cost? What's the cost of not having access to financial services? And the news article which you picked up, Alex, about you know there being a six-week wait, the poverty premium is roughly £490. So average household in the UK pay up to £490 extra because they don't have access to the same services. And an example is they pay for energy through more expensive prepayment meters. If you think about the, again, the implications of this, it's not having, providing access to everybody, which is what the FCA is after, has implications closer to home as well. So it, it is something which is really important and worth focusing energy on. And how, how do you think about this, Alex, in terms of what can be done? I think, I think from my humble perspective as a journalist, I think that the, it comes down to, and it's something we're talking about a lot, is on the one hand is the inclusion aspect, but on the other is the education aspect in that it comes from both sides of the industry as well. Not only the those offering products and services to people, but also those who are regulating those offering products and services. I think that it's it behooves those who have to help those who have not. And I think that there are, there can be cases where firms can prey upon those who may not make the right financial decisions. We look at, for example, in the UK, the issue of payday lenders, and it took a long time for those to be regulated properly and to understand the predatory nature of payday loans with APR rates in the thousands. And we've discussed on this podcast before the issue, the issues that sort of circumnavigate the world of buy now, pay later firms, where there needs to be a an onus on education. And I think education and inclusion have, they go hand in hand. And people need to be made aware of the of the way that they're interacting with financial services. And also they should be made aware that although there are plenty of firms out there and there's some that are doing great work by giving access to, to unbanked and the bank people and giving them an opportunity. But as the old saying goes, you know, a grand don't come for free. And I think in some cases you've got to make sure that what you're engaging with is on the up and up. And, and uh, I really like what you said, Alex. It's it's a two-pronged challenge or a problem or a solution, whichever way you want to look at it. One is around the education piece, which is around helping consumers or the customers feel comfortable with finances and have the be confident around managing their finances. So it's around the education piece, which some of the high street banks in the UK are actually doing quite well. And the second is also ensuring that the way credit is provided to consumers it's right and your payday loan examples which is quoting at a thousand percent apr it's, it's ridiculously high for consumers and i was actually talking to one of our customers recently who was the ceo of a credit union in the uk and one of the problems they are trying to solve is that how can we ensure that we are able to lend about 50 to 100 pounds to customers who are in need without the cost of disbursing a loan collections going up to 100 pounds and that for from if you look from a purely a business lens for for a second justifies the apr you charge but ultimately from ease of access of financial services the problem statement for the industry is how can you make access of credit to people who need it the most in a way that is affordable and is also making sense from a business lens. So if somebody wants to borrow 50 pounds because their paycheck is due, you know, three days or four days down the line, they should not have to pay 
a multiple of that amount they should be able to pay in normal circumstances what the interest rate is So here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview style section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking inclusion and unbanked and underbanked in just a moment. But first, I'm going to give Kunal a minute or two to talk about his role at Mambu and the firm and just give us an introduction to himself and the company. Awesome. Thanks, Alec. I'll start by talking about Mambu. Mambu is a core banking SaaS software provider. What it means is that we essentially make banking simple for our customers who are some of the largest banks, some of the fintechs, and also non-financial institutions to actually deliver great customer experiences to their end consumers. As an organization, we have been around for 10 years. We have around 180 plus customers across 65 countries serving great microfinancial institutions. That's how we started to neo banks to some of the largest banks in the world. And we call something called composable banking, which is our philosophy and what we believe in, which is banking is not meant to last, it's meant to change. So what that means is that build a bank in such a way that you can actually use the best components available in the market at best of time so that ultimately as a bank, you can deliver best-in-class customer experience at optimal cost. About my role, I run a lead advisory team for Mambu for EMEA. What the advisory team does for our customers is we bring learnings from 200-plus clients across 60-plus customers to make our customers successful in their journey. So essentially act as a strategic partner with the customers in the journey across customer strategy, commercial strategy, an operation strategy to ensure that uh, we are not just a tech vendor for our customers. We are a strategic partner uh, in a really important journey in financial services. That's great. And uh, to, to jump into our main uh, topic for the, this podcast, touched on it a little bit earlier with the news and numbers, but there's been, we've covered it on our publication so many times, there's been an exponential increase in the products and services available to to the underbanked and unbanked in, in markets like Latin America, in, in Asia and East Asia. And but despite that, why is it that we still see surveys and studies coming out displaying such high numbers uh, of those who aren't engaging in the financial services system. Uh, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a massive question to ask you straight away, Kunal, so I apologize for that, but uh, hopefully you can bring some insight on it. No, uh, and it's a great question. And let me just add some context, which we discussed in the first section. It's despite having five and a half billion consumers in the world having access to mobile services, we still see the degree of being underbanked and unbanked as high. And we, I would attribute it to three main reasons. So one is the ease of banking because the reasons customers are active on mobile phones and on other channels is because it's easy to do it. It's intuitive, it's easy, it's seamless. Opening an account on Facebook doesn't take you five days. It's simple and intuitive. So that's number one. So it's getting customers to have that comfort factor. The The second factor is the cost in a lot of countries in the world, especially the countries that you mentioned, Alex, opening and maintaining a bank account actually costs money. And 
what is needed is in the world and age we live in that how can we offer digitally native banking solutions to end consumers so that opening a bank is not an expensive operation to run if you consider large banks in the world which are serving customers typically their cost to serve a customer ranges from 300 to 400 dollars per customer and that's why the fees so how can you actually create banking which is easy to use for customers and the last part is it's the comfort factor it's okay to bank on a mobile it's safe it's easy it's safe and it's okay to bank on a mobile and if i take a really personal example my grandmother still likes to go to a bank and get the passbook filled in i mean i've never seen it in real life and i find it really weird but that's what give her gives her comfort to use it so it's about education and actually helping the consumers feel that it's safe and the bank won't take your money or you won't lose your money. It is available for you and actually there to help you out. I think that's a fantastic point that you made at the end there. It, it transcends across as well because your example is, I have a similar one as well. My my father has never been one for, he, he's starting to download a few fintech apps now, but he's still, every time he needs to get money, he walks down to the bank to take out his money in cash and still writes me checks and things like that. And I, I think that, that ties into like the, there's a technological aspect here as well. And it, what role can financial institutions themselves, what role can they play in improving inclusion uh, from both ends of the spectrum? If you're thinking young people who are underbanked or unbanked, but also at the other end, we were talking about your grandmother and my father. What, what extent, extent can they help technologically? And I'll just build on your question, Alex. I'll also talk about technology and also talk about culture or education. So if you talk about technology, so technologically it's ease of availability and i'll take a weird example which is starbucks right so starbucks although it's not related to the topic but it's ubiquitous everybody likes to go and have a coffee at starbucks because it's easy it's simple you can go you go into a store the barista knows your name you get your coffee and you move out similarly how can you leverage technology to make banking really easy to use and not seem like rocket science to the customer so if you want to open an account, it's as simple as you scan your ID, you take a picture and you have an account from which you can take money out and put money in. So from a technology perspective, it's how do you simplify banking that it can be opened in a matter of seconds, not weeks or days. It's easy to use, it's intuitive, and you don't need to go and talk to a person or call somebody on the phone to make it happen. On the second part of it, it's the culture slash education part. It's And if you take my grandmother or your father's example, it's about the comfort factor that it still works. That if you see money on a mobile phone screen, that money is not going anywhere. If you are transferring money from here to there, that it will actually reach there. If you If I take my example, I have all I have accounts with a lot of the neo banks and fintechs right now, but I I still don't put my salary in there, and it's not because I don't trust them. It's just because it's the inherent thing that I just feel comfortable putting my money in a big bank, and I think it's about helping. And if you take it to the extreme, to to our parents and our grandparents' generation, it's making them feel comfortable that it's safe, it's usable, it's convenient, it works like it should be, and it's actually taking a fraction of the time that we are used to it taking. It's interesting that you mentioned there about 
the, the deposits that you don't necessarily put into the new banks. And because I wanted to touch on the new banks and neo banks, and, and because mm-hmm. their ability to create products and put them, you know, to market very quickly at a low cost ratio is often cited as a big reason for their success or the, or the success that they have had. That not that they've taken over the market, but the niches that they're carving for themselves is down to, for in a lot of people's opinions, their ability to put out products fast and at lower cost. When you look at larger banks, your tier ones, your tier twos, who have that sort of history of legacy systems, if they're so inclined to to create you know, ease of use and, and inclusive accounts for people, how hard is it uh, for them to pivot on the spot and, and offer those services? So, so you've actually touched on a really, uh, which is on how hard it is. If you if you take any tier one or tier two big bank, their uh, the technology has been built over a number of years, mm-hmm. and progressively they have improved it, and they have got massive IT systems. If you look at the European banks, the top hundred European banks spend around fifty billion dollars on in IT or technology at this point of time. Whereas in terms of, and if you take that into context, it appears hard, impossible to do something. But that's new generation technology systems, software as a service models, and companies such as ourselves as Mambu come in, because what we believe in is that you should be able to take the best components in the market and quickly iterate and get to the market. And just to give an example, one of large tier one banks who was a customer, they launched a new wallet proposition in Latin America where they were able to build the MVP in 13 days and go live in three months. So if you go back to your question, how hard is it to big banks? In our experience, it's not that hard. And in the age where we've seen massive tech companies grow and you know, scale up rapidly where they have increased their valuation multiples by a factor of 10 to 15x over the last decade. It's because they are able to adapt, build propositions, build product according to the customer needs and operate at pace. And that's what the banks need to do in terms of the question you need to answer. So in, in the current setup, how the legacy systems are set up and how complicated it is to actually figure it out I used to work for a large uh, tier one bank for Mambu and it takes time and effort, but we have seen it with our customers that it can actually happen in a matter of days and weeks. And you could actually take a go-to live market proposition with a customer in about three to four months. That's fantastic. I, I think when we talk about the technological side, we talk tech and we talk education, but there's also, we should talk on the, the we should touch the topic of diversity. Um, and people often have a view of larger institutions, tier ones, tier twos, as we've mentioned, not offering you know the right people the, the right space to to get into those decision making positions. So, now how hard is it for banks and financial institutions to to realise that potential, offer those services like you just said that get that show results in the weeks to the months, like almost immediately, if they don't have the right people in in decision making positions? Is is that something you've you would agree with? Do you think there's still a diversity issue and, and how can they go about solving it? So uh, I would agree that there's a diversity issue. And I, I think it's also come to comes to different view. It boils down to the, having the different viewpoints. So it's essentially how do you bring different voices, different skill sets in a room 
people who have had experiences from a non-banking sector that can actually help think of solving problems in a different way. So I'll take my uh, example of my last role where I used to work for a tier one bank. My manager, my boss used to came from telecom. I have had experience working in investment banking and we were trying to solve retail banking problems. And the way we were approaching the problems were from a very different lens uh, as to how do you solve for the customer? That's lens number one. And the second lens is how do you ensure that even the basic things like things like signing a check or just having comfort that the money has actually left your account or reached your account is available to your cost to, to the end consumer to answer your question i think yes there is a there is a diversity challenge but i think a lot of banks are doing a lot they are making efforts to actually go on the right track and that also comes from adequate representation it also comes from having the skill sets and the viewpoints from even non-banking sectors because that actually ensures that you're thinking of the problem in a very different first principles kind of way and i think that's why as a, I'll, I'll just uh, talk about mambo for a second if that's okay but sure. that's also one of our strengths uh, as an organization because the way we started to solve we started with the mission to solve the problem for the unbanked to solve for microservices institutions and then we have gradually repivoted you know to start serving big banks and tier one banks and because we thought as a company we have thought about solving the problem from first principles not thinking like how bankers would solve just to get to the outcome in the most effective way for the end consumers it actually has resulted in where we are i think having different viewpoints having different skill sets having the right representation and thinking the about the problem in a very fresh way is actually the way to act, to solve the problem which you had highlighted in the question another thing that should be once we we off talking about diversity in terms of there's also diversity in terms of the way that you target different demographics we spoke about obviously yeah. our parents and grandparents generation but what we're seeing a new generation arise and myself being a in the middle bracket of the millennial generation it's, it's interesting the banks are still trying to target us despite the oldest of us being in their 40s now but we're seeing a new generation arise with, with gen z and and now gen alpha as well who are clued up and engaged and in in pretty much all cases tech savvy from the time they can walk and talk so what what uh, impact do you think they'll have on on the financial services industry as they begin to interact with it at an increasing rate i think they'll have a massive impact in terms of how they expect financial industry services industry to act to them because i, I, I had a smile when you talked for the millennials and some of them in the 40s and, and that's actually true of the banking industry but specifically with if you take gen z as an example at this point of time they are a generation you know that grew up with mobile phones and social networks and having everything available at that instance and if i compare them to myself i got my first laptop or computer when i was 17 so the way they think the way they engage with technology the way they expect things to happen is massively different and there's also a bit of a psyche shift which is happening which is they are 
spend like their spending habits the way they think about money is completely different so the implication for banks is twofold the way they talk to consumers about money then managing credit etc needs to change in a completely different way that's number one and number two is it's i think of it as the customer experience economy which essentially means that we need to start solving for experiences for those customers if you look at a generation z or a gen alpha consumer they expect things to happen really fast they expect to consume information in the form of content they expect their bank to be available in the channels that they are present and therefore a lot of banks have started experimenting on being present over whatsapp facebook messenger etc so the force at which they are coming in and the way their expectations have are changing has got a massive implication for banks that they need to change and adopt to their consumers and i think there's a forward looking a leading indicator trend in the market so if you see over the last couple of months the number of banks who have received bc backing bank backing or funding which are focused on teenagers uh, like step is a bank in the us which has got focused on teenagers they are the next generation of banks which are targeting the consumers which are going to be relevant for them in the next 10 years so we did touch a bit about trust and loyalty if you target these customers in a way that they like to consume content in a way that they like to interact that's actually going to build stickiness with your customers so it's a massive implication for banks that they need to repivot quickly and adapt and position themselves to the customer as their customers expected not the way banking has been done in the past Here we are in part three of the podcast and everyone's favorite section, the FinTech Jail. This is where we ask for a buzzword, an industry term, or a trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of, maybe on the conference circuit, maybe on many digital meetings. We'll then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, an extended sentence. So Kunal, what buzzword or trendy topic uh, do you wish was banished from our, our FinTech lexicon and, and shut away for good? uh transformation i think it's it's a word that has been heard for a long time and it typically brings the vision in mind that it's going to take us a couple of years to achieve something we live in an age and we have seen it happen that things are constantly changing and as banks as institutions we need to constantly evolve the word transformation has actually lost meaning now you need to be ready to change at that moment so it's about agility not transformation that's an interesting one i think that it's a uh... It's definitely a very ubiquitous word to go in, yeah. but it's also one that we always you always hear about banks and their ongoing digital transformations. Which and and like you said, it does conjure up an idea of a five to five to seven year long project costing hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars, and getting a CIO fired here or there. But what word would you in in that context? What word would you if transformation was locked away? What word would you replace it with? Evolution, perhaps, or something similar. Uh, i would replace it with agility and w- what i mean by agility is that we are ready to change at the moment we are not waiting for somebody to approve something have a committee have a meeting and take a decision by investigating hundreds of factors 
It's about agility that we will repivot, we will change according to our customers, and we are ready to change whenever the need arises. Mm-hmm. You are uh, persuasive. I, I don't think I can lock away. I think there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of C-suite and um, and execs who'll be angry with me if I lock away the word transformation for too long. Perhaps it but, deserves a place in, in the county jail. I'm not sure. No, but Alex, let me ask you a question. In, in your day to day, how many times have you ever heard the word transformation? Oh, it's in, it's in every press release. It, 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 exactly, and I think if you think about what's happening in the world what's relevant today won't be relevant in 12 months time so let's take another example if you and i were talking about say bitcoin 18 months ago or crypto or 18 months ago we would have said it's a fad but now it's becoming a great topic so the speed at which the world is changing lots has lost its meaning so i i agree with you about the county jail point but I think if you look at the reality of how, how banks are actually adopting, and specifically if you look at the number of banks who have set up innovation labs and digital hubs, they are inadvertently actually trying to develop their own agility. So they are actually going on the path that they do believe that transformation is not that relevant. I, I like the idea that you said that everything changes within 12 months. And the less I talk about crypto, the better, because I'm cursed whenever it comes to cryptocurrency. I think perhaps in that on that note, we'll give... Uh, We'll give transformation 12 months, 12 months in the jail, and we'll, we'll revisit it and see if things have changed, which brings us to the end of the podcast. So thanks very much, Kunal, for, for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Alex. Really had a great time talking to you, and thank you for having me over. No problem. Thanks, thanks for coming on. And for those wondering if they want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at ADHamilton91 and on, by link, and on LinkedIn just by searching for my name and, and ignoring the BBC weather woman who sometimes comes at the top. One day I will I'll rank higher than her. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting service. We'd also always really appreciate it if you could give us a review or recommend us to any other listeners. We thank all of our listeners for any and all of your support. We will see you again soon for another episode of What the Fit Tech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.